If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, February the 26th, and welcome to Area 45. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today here in the Hoover Institution's office, deep in the heart of the nation's capital, is Commander David Slayton. David Slayton is a Hoover Institution Research Fellow, a member of Hoover's Schultz-Stevenson Task Force on Energy Policy, co-chair of Hoover's Arctic Security Initiative. And that's our topic today, the Arctic, what is going on way to the north. Uh, you may have noticed I mentioned he is Commander David Slayton. He is a Navy man, are you not? I am, and I've been retired now out of the Navy, just to be clear, for, for five years. And I've seen you in uniform, and you wear Navy wings of gold. Absolutely. How long did you fly? I flew for the Navy in a number of different capacities for most of the time, about 25 years total. Wow. What uh, what equipment did you fly? So I started off in P3s right down the street from Stanford at Moffett Field. So long-distance reconnaissance flights. Exactly. Then <laughs> transitioned to the carrier-based version of, uh, of that aircraft, the S3. Flew that for a while. And then I ended up my career and did my command tour in the A6B Prowlers. And you've seen combat? Quite a bit. Not too far off of topic, Deke, but when you're flying into combat, what goes through a man's mind while you're while you're heading into harm's way? Doing the mission and making sure you bring everyone back. Mm-hmm. And it is Deke, right? It is. Now, is that an homage to the Mercury astronaut, or is this one of those tailhook nicknames we don't need to know about? No, it's a, it's a call sign, and I'm thankful to have received something so kind uh, based on my last name, vice, based off of something stupid I did either in the aircraft or on the flight deck. <laughs> And uh, I'm often asked uh, what the relationship is. Is there a direct familial relationship? And what I like to say about myself uh, and Donald K. Slayton, the original Deke Slayton, is we're about as close on the family tree as chipmunks and chimpanzees. But there is a... uh, there is definitely a direct tie. Of the, fan, the Slayton family has been in the United States for for quite some time. Yeah, he was not a Navy man. I think I think he flew. Uh, I think he flew Army Air Force in World War II, if I'm not mistaken. And it's interesting. He did not fly a Mercury flight. He uh, ran into a uh, a heart issue. They claimed that he had, I think, a heart uh, in atrial fibrillation, and they would not uh, they would not let him fly. They kept him grounded. But eventually, he overcame it and let him fly Apollo. That's correct. Yeah. And, uh, so he was right at the end with uh, with Skylab. And uh, so he finally got his time and space. And again, I, I cannot take responsibility for the fact that Donald K. Slayton, the deep Slayton, uh, joined the Air Force instead of the Navy like some of his other uh, original Mercury 7 comrades. But uh, without question, in all seriousness, uh, an incredible individual yeah. uh, when our nation did that cadre of, uh, of individuals uh, to do what they needed to do to get us to the moon. Right. And for you, a good starting point for a conversation. Absolutely. Okay. So, Deke, uh, the Arctic. Um, I did a little homework on the Arctic Ocean just to bone up for a conversation. Uh, Arctic comes from Arctos, which is Greek for bear. And it doesn't refer to polar bears. It refers to the fact that the northern sky constellations orient you toward the Arctic Ocean. It is smallest of the oceans. It's about 5.4 million square miles, which is about one and a half times the United States. It covers the parts of eight countries, and they are, if you trace the globe, Canada, Greenland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Russia, and the U.S. of A. There is such a thing as the Arctic Council, which is a forum that allows the world's governments to discuss development, environment, and so forth. This is all a landmark year for the Arctic Deke. It is the 60th anniversary in August of the Nautilus and its undersea voyage to the North Pole. So we look at the Arctic Ocean Deke, and the first thing that comes to mind is that the planet 
is changing. And lest I invoke that controversial phrase, climate change, the oceans are changing up north. So tell us exactly what's going on. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Uh, we're seeing some remarkable dynamic changes in the oceans wide. And uh, to go back to where we started with the, with the Hoover Arctic Security Initiative when we, when we stood this up. Yeah, it tells, so you created this. Uh, tell us, you created it in 2012, right? Yeah, that's correct. You and? Gary, 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 Gary Ruffett. And uh, when we were initially asked, you know, okay, this group of folks in California, you wanted to get deeply involved and study and do scholarly work and policy work on the Arctic, uh, why is it? And the first, you know, the, the quick answer was because things happen there first and fastest mm -hmm. uh, in the Arctic. So there's many things that are going on in that region that can quickly be extrapolated to the rest of the world. The second is both, you know, Admiral Roughhead and, and myself have a Navy background, and at its heart, the Arctic is an ocean. And when you have a new ocean appearing on the planet, those of us who are in the Navy very right. excited, get very excited about that. Uh, which brings me to another point when we talk uh, publicly about the Arctic and the differences between the poles, the North Pole and the South Pole. The Arctic is an ocean surrounded by land, the eight nations that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Antarctica is land surrounded by oceans. And the governance of both the poles are starkly different and exactly for that reason. You know, there's, a, there's existing common international law, maritime law, UN law of the sea and, and other governance structures that, that apply to the Arctic that do not apply uh, necessarily to the Antarctic or really any, any other place. Um, and you mentioned the eight nations in the Arctic. Five of them are uh, maritime nations. They have coastlines. And, uh, and that's where some of the other governance features come into play and then play at large. And there's a ninth nation, which we're going to get into in a few minutes, which considers itself an Arctic nation, and that would be? China. China. Yes, a near-Arctic nation. Near-Arctic nation, yes, it calls itself. It. Well, I mentioned, I wanted to start with Weather Deke for this simple reason. There was a week in February where there was incredible weather fluctuation um, north of us, north of Greenland. Uh, the weather station at Morris Jessup, which is at the northern tip of Greenland, saw temperatures climb from near th minus 30 degrees centigrade to a few degrees above zero. That's a serious change in weather in a matter of few days. And then it roller coastered to between the minus 20s and above freezing twice since then. The average temperature deke across the entire Arctic north of the 80 degree north latitude. I guess that's technically the definition of the Arctic. Uh, actually just above uh, six degrees. Okay, so this is above the 80 degrees north latitude. Uh, it's extremely high, minus 20 degrees centigrade, higher than normal for this time of the year. And you mentioned before we came in here that there was a day where it was colder in Rome. <laughs> than it was in the Arctic. And, at, and we're seeing that today in Europe. I think much of Europe and, in fact, uh, parts of the United States right now are in the lower 48 are colder uh, than it is in the Arctic round. We've seen the variations in, in temperature uh, where it's, it's been warmer, that, that nice tight high that normally contains all that polar air mass mm -hmm. has been loosening and getting down uh, both into North America and throughout Europe. And as we see now, extending this far south right. is Rome. Right. Okay, so if... The landscape is changing. If the if the ice is starting to break, if the water is starting to clear, this presents challenges for the United States of America, for the Trump administration. And let's play what I like to call Arctic Jeopardy, Deke. Let's sure. give you the following categories. Category number one for the Trump administration, the Arctic and defense and national security. Go. Okay, perfect. So as I mentioned before, five of the five of the Arctic nations are maritime. The largest coastline in the Arctic is Russia. And if there's been one benefactor to the dynamic changes we've seen in the oceans worldwide, being the opening of the Arctic, it's been Russia. It's allowed them to have uh, greater transit across their own uh, territorial seas. 
it's allowed them to have access to resources that they desperately need offshore in the Kara Sea, around the Yumal Peninsula. It's also allowed uh, Russia to form new trade agreements and trade routes between themselves and China. So we've seen in recent history that they just inked a 30-year natural gas deal between Russia and China. And insofar as that goes, they've done a remarkable job at repurposing a lot of their Cold War infrastructure in the high north to, to protect their lines of communication and their, and their, economic, uh, their economic growth in the high north. And again, if you look at Russia as a nation, a significant amount of their industrial capacity is already above the Arctic Circle. And uh, likewise, their northern fleet based out of Murmansk has been there for a while and there for a reason. And they're, they're repurposing and recycling and applying those resources to, again, protect their economic, uh, protect their economic. So if you're the United States DEEK, this means, what, I need to deploy satellites and watch the area? I need to send naval vessels north? I need to have aircraft patrol? I need to have submarines under the water? This must cause us to rethink our strategy as we deploy our forces. Absolutely. So the one, uh, the one international strait we share with Russia, the Bering Strait, right. uh, the Russians and others use that strait year-round, and uh, the United States tends to only use it about four or five months out of the year. So hence, they have a greater presence, uh, they have a greater awareness of what's happening uh, in that part. And again, we are a nation that shares an international boundary with, with Russia. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on what's happening on our southern border, but not so much what's happening on our north, northern border, uh, particularly with a nation that we're not, uh, that's not very friendly with us. So yes, uh, to build on your point, we definitely need to have more presence, we need to have more awareness, we need to have uh, more resources, capacity, and capability Okay. Uh, put towards the Arctic. Category two would be natural resources, which I'm going to give you a very broad definition of oil, minerals, fish, and other revenue. This is a President Deke nominated at a national convention where people chanted, drill, baby, drill. So they are not anti-oil export by any means. So what are the U.S. options? So again, uh, there are known resources offshore of, of Alaska. Mm -hmm. Again, it's, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been widely disseminated. It's not deep water, not like the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we're not talking about high-pressure reservoirs. Um, again, it's an extension of, of, the, of the enormous basin that's onshore in Alaska and Anwar and the North Slope that goes, that goes offshore. And again, it just presents another opportunity for the United States to develop resources uh, and continue to be a leader in the, uh, in the energy sector around the world. Because as things are today, as we've seen in the past, uh, ten years ago, where uh, where we were as a nation as it relates to energy is nowhere close to where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. And ten years from now, that situation could change again. And I think it's important for the United States, even if those resources offshore are not developed, I think we have a responsibility to verify what the, what those resources are offshore. So in the in the event we need to develop those resources, we know it's out there. Right, so oil, and then you also mentioned uh, nickel. Absolutely, mm -hmm. so as far as, uh, again, one of some of the largest deposits of nickel and zinc are contained in the Arctic, not only in, in North America, but throughout Europe and in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, is an, there are already a number of mines in operation in, uh, in Alaska. We have one of the, again, uh, in Russia, there's one of the largest nickel mines in the world that operates just over the border from Norway. And then uh, they, again, continue to develop their extractive resource capability now that they have more access to do it, the Russians, that is, uh, in their own backyard. Okay. This leads to the next uh, category, which is law and governance. Let's say Whalen Mining wants to put an oil derrick in the Arctic Ocean and start drilling away. What are the legal catches here? 
Where, well, where can I go? Because remember, the Romans had a map of the Mediterranean, and what did it say? Mare Nostrum, our sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a body of water shared by eight nations. So I imagine there are turf fights, territorial restrictions. I couldn't just take my oil rig and park it off Russia, I imagine, and drill. So what what are what are the legal restrictions here in terms of exploring? That's a, uh, again, it's going to be driven by the territorial seas and the economic exclusion zone of the right. nation's concern. So for the most part, any, any development of offshore resources are going to be captured by a, a sovereign nation's territorial sea and economic exclusion right. zone. So there's not a whole lot of gray area. By definition, there is a small section of, of what's deemed as high seas. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Arctic, it's a donut hole. It's right in the middle. And uh, that would probably not be an area that that people would go to develop a, develop oil or natural gas or have, available uh, near shore. Have any of the nations been overstepping their bounds? There Sh- some, shall I just say Russia? Yeah, there have been <laughs> some that have that have been uh, pressing the limits. Uh-huh. Uh, and again, I'll go back to I'll go back to the management of international maritime straits, and I go uh-huh. I'll go back to the way nations manage their ter- territorial seas. So there is a there is a there is a maritime route that runs along the north coast of Russia, the northern right. sea route. Uh-huh. And counter to customary international law, the way uh, mariners normally operate, the Russians charge a fee uh, to transit that route. Oh. And they see that as insurance because they are providing ice-breaking services and search and rescue services and everything else. As a, as a mariner uh, and as a professional mariner, that's actually a smart way to do it. However, right. it is a unique approach uh, that has been tacitly consented to uh, by the folks that, that transit. The route, but again, the IMO has taken a look at that. It's, there's, an, there's been an, there's been a push to establish the, the Northern Sea Route as a as a qualified, you know, normal uh, transit route. So it can come under a little bit more regulatory uh, observation by by the IMO and others. Okay. Next category, Jake, shipping and economics, which ties into this conversation. Um, China comes into play here. Why do the Chinese have an interest in the Arctic Ocean? Well, as a nation with 1.36 billion people. With a B, billion, right. Billion. They are uh, constantly looking for secure um, sources for resources. Mm -hmm. And they see the abundance of resources in the high north. And they also see the opening uh, of the Arctic to those resources. And they've invested heavily in it. Uh, They just released a, a white paper on the 26th of January outlining their desires uh, to continue exploring, continue to put research and development, uh, but also making the point that they want to have assured access to the Arctic as well as any other nation. Right. Uh, and they've also invested heavily. They've got a nuclear-powered icebreaker, mm. and they've been sending a number of research, uh, and I say that in quotes, research expeditions uh, into the Arctic to get a better lay of the land. How many nations have nuclear icebreakers? Uh, right now, there are Russia has a, a great deal uh, of them, mm-hmm. more than six, and they're building more. China has theirs, and those are the two prominent ones. And again, uh, China is going to be a challenge for us right. in the Arctic going forward, and Russia, I think, will continue to be. And what, what is America's icebreaking capability? I'd like to say that the United States has 1.2 uh, icebreakers. <sighs> We have uh, one heavy icebreaker that was actually brought out of mothballs. The hull's over 40 years old. And, uh, and then we have the Healy, which is a smaller icebreaker mm-hmm. that's primarily used to support National Science Foundation and other, uh, other efforts up in the high north. But we are far and away um, below where we need to be because just, just like we use heavy equipment and, and a lot of other things to build terrestrial land-based infrastructure, mm-hmm. icebreakers are the way to build infrastructure at sea in the Arctic. They build the pathways for the ships right. to go through. And they also provide the the assurance, the, the capacity and capability for 
search and rescue for escort, uh, again, for the Coast Guard, they're capital ships of the United States that can be used for, for a number of things. And right. right now we are in desperate need of more icebreaking. Is there any talk on Capitol Hill about authorizing some building of icebreakers? The, uh, I'll say this, the, the Hill has been admiring this problem for <laughs> quite some time. Uh, and we, out of the, the Arctic Security Initiative here at, here at Hoover, uh, presented the Coast Guard Maritime Subcommittee a number of options that are mm -hmm. available today. What do we recommend? So there are, are a number of things from uh, from leasing, which the United States has done in the past uh, with the with the Palmer, but again, primarily used for research. Um, buying plans for, for icebreakers from other other nations that do this very well. For example, Finland uh, leasing outright uh, and then manning with their with their own folks, or a number of things in between. Bottom line is there exists a number of authorities today for us to expand our capacity and capability in the United States in icebreaking, and we're currently not exercising them. You would think the Trump administration would be interested because obviously it makes strategic sense, but also it makes political sense, Deke, if you can, you know, get a couple shipyards hopping building icebreakers. Absolutely. Right. Uh, shipbuilding is definitely a resource and, and economic uh, intensive endeavor. Let's, let's close out on China and the, uh, the shipping issue, Deke, because one thing which China is is an exporting giant. And they were involved in the construction of the second Panama Canal for this reason, so they can send bigger ships to the canal. And they also have a vested interest in the Arctic Ocean, which is shipping their exports. How would a thinning Arctic Ocean change their maritime traffic? Well, it has the potential to provide a shorter route. And again, we haven't seen it much in recent years where, where there are uh, commercial ships making the entire transit mm -hmm. across the Arctic, but it is a distinct uh, possibility. And not to the size of, of, uh, of ships that you see now going through the Panama Max, uh, obviously. And even, even under the best of conditions with regard to ice in the Arctic, mm -hmm. uh, one still has to contend with the weather right. and darkness uh, for part of the year and a number of other items. And to go back to what we talked about before about what does it take to enable a safe, secure, and prosperous Arctic, uh, the maritime routes in the Arctic aren't as well charted. Uh, the navigational aids aren't uh, as plentiful or as uh, spaced quite the same way as they are in other part of the world. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of challenges uh, to operate as a professional mariner in the Arctic. Uh, the IMO has gone a long way in, in producing the polar code on how commercial vessels are going to operate up there. But again, China sees this, again, they're looking strategically long right. term as uh, as an additional route for their exports, which are, which are a pretty high percentage that, that end up going to Europe and they want to go back and forth. And right. if China is going to make those uh, investments, then we are going to be left with what China buys and invests in, in the Arctic. And this is where our administration needs to take a smart look on how we want to be managing our own backyard and that of our friends and allies. Mm -hmm. So those eight nations you mentioned in the Arctic. Yes, plus one. We're very friendly with seven of them. Okay. Uh, so again, we have, now is the, now is the opportunity to work with our friends and allies to make the Arctic what we need it to be going forward, rather than having it be influenced by third parties that may not be friendly to our interests going forward. There is one final Arctic Jeopardy category, Deke, and it is a tricky one to talk about, so let's wade into it gently, and that is weather. Um, I don't want to evoke the word climate change. People will click off the podcast if they don't like that phrase, but there is a reality that the dynamic is changing up north. So walk us into weather in the Arctic and what exactly is happening. And then let's segue into how this affects the United States Navy, because I know the Navy um, has documents about the Bering Strait and navigability, and it's had to revamp its strategy. Absolutely. Let's kind of walk back a, a little bit on that. 
definitely a huge difference between the overall climate uh, on the planet and, mm -hmm. and, and, and weather events. Uh, and likewise, the, the approach that we've taken from a scholarly point of view and, and the uh, Arctic Security Initiative at Hoover is we're not necessarily focused on the why things have been changing over the, over the past decades, but the what is changing and how does that right. what uh, affect the vital interests of the United States and our friends and allies going forward, particularly in the in other words, you're looking at the house and the house is on fire. We're not going to have an argue about whether or not grandpa dropped his cigar or a gas main broke. It's just we got to deal with the fire. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, and again, uh, even under the best of conditions, uh, you still have these local events that are going to make being, right. you know, commercial navigation in the Arctic uh, to be challenging. But the reality is things are changing. And mm -hmm. uh, when, when we're asked about where, you know, where investments need to be made, uh, the top three answers are are science, science, and science. I mean, we definitely right. need to have more data collection in order to have a better foundation to make plans uh, for investments in infrastructure to make better, uh, to make it a better environment for a safe, secure, and prosperous Arctic for the United States and our friends and allies right. going forward. So the Navy Deke has done a white paper on this, and it said that the Bering Strait, um, it expects to see open conditions about half the year, 160-day years by 20 by 2020. Right. Uh, the Navy is now estimating the deep ocean routes of the transpolar transit route uh, will be open up to 45 days by 2025. So the United States Navy, what does this do to naval forces, Deke? And I think those are actually both conservative, conservative, conservative estimates. estimates. And okay. then the other point to, to, to bring out is, uh, is the North American Arctic, you know, the, the Arctic that's off of uh, Northwest Canada and Alaska are very different. From, uh, from the European Arctic and the area around the Kola Peninsula in northern, uh, in, in northern Norway. Uh, and again, the Navy in the past, uh, in, in my conversations with them, have pointed out that they have operated in the Arctic before with the existing hulls we have, but they've right. been, in, they've been in, the, you know, the, the, uh, in the European sector. Right. To operate in the Bering, the Bering Strait is a, is a far different uh, animal and definitely yeah. need some ice-hardened ice ships. That said, it's going back to the discussion about, about icebreakers. Icebreakers is what builds the maritime infrastructure, the passageways for the ships going forward. And if, we're, if we, as a nation, are going to operate in that area more than those 45 days, more than those 160 days, we're definitely going to need the capacity and capability to do it as well as the onshore infrastructure to support those assets that are operating. That was my next question. Would the Navy need to put some sort of forward base in Alaska? Yes. Because uh, right now, if you're doing Arctic patrols, Deke, you're probably coming out of, if you're not coming from San Diego, you're probably coming out of what, uh, Yokosuka in Japan, right? Or, uh, or out of Seattle. Right out of Seattle. Yes, okay. that's right. And right. so currently, there's not a, there's not a deep water port right. uh, in Alaska. So it means there's a long transit just to get up there. Absolutely. Right. So the closest, uh, the closest port that support an operation like that currently is in, in Dutch Harbor, which is on the Aleutian chain, which is still... A significant distance away from the Bering Strait. So if you were if you were to build Deke in Alaska, would you build with a carrier group in mind? Would you have to have that much infrastructure, or just something to house you know three or four surface ships? Something that could be that would serve as a deep water port. Okay. Which is what we currently don't have. So you need a base, you need infrastructure, you need to dredge. I mean, this is a full time operation you're Absolutely. talking about. Absolutely. Right? And, and, and again, all those all that infrastructure that that we just mentioned also is going to be used. You know, mm -hmm. It would support the commercial operations that also we expect to increase right. in that area going forward. So it's not just a, again, a, a, a hard security benefit. It's something that's going to benefit the economic development and viability of our great state of Alaska uh, and that of our friends and allies that operate with us in that, in that area.
How has our submarine presence in the Arctic changed over the years? That's the question that I'm not able to answer in this venue. You could tell me you have to kill me, right? I can say that it's probably in line with the traditional deployments that we've seen in the past. Okay, so I should go get uh, Hunt for Red October and watch that or <laughs> understand. All right, so these things are changing. If you were to walk two blocks from here to the Trump White House and sit down with the West Wing aides, whoever is in charge, that's a good question, by the way. Who in the federal government runs Arctic policy? Presently unnamed. Unnamed. Yeah, so the... Uh, okay, when you say unnamed, are, are you saying there is no White House presence, or are you looking at a specific department? I think the response uh, from the last administration, as it relates to the region of the Arctic, uh, has now been spread over a few different people, a few different areas uh, within the current administration. I trust that's going to change your... So that would be DOD? Uh, between DOD, state, state, you know, again, it's a whole, because it's such mm -hmm. a broad region and a number of our, our partners are involved. Uh, there's definitely a whole of, whole of government approach uh, to, to the but the the representatives that had been working the portfolio in the DOD are, have, have moved on and have not, not been replaced. Uh -huh. The State Department is, is the same way uh, at a number of number of places in, in commerce and elsewhere within the government uh, where people have either moved on or positions have been eliminated that had specifically dealt in the past uh, with the Arctic. You know, the same can be said for uh, the national uh, the National Security Council as well. So, but that said, there are indications that the administration is quickly coming back up to speed on the region and identifying uh, that there are indeed requirements that need to be uh, addressed and worked from not only from a policy perspective, but from a resource and requirements perspective too. Okay, so you have their ear for a meeting. What what are you going to tell them? Look at our own backyard first in Alaska. Mm -hmm. uh, and all, all I have to do is point to our two great senators we have there, Senator Murkowski and Senator Sullivan, who would be at the ready with their list of things to go. And I think at the top of that list would be the deep water port uh, to put off their shores. And likewise, uh, adding both on and offshore infrastructure to support increased maritime presence and, uh, and development of resources within their state. Second, I would point to our European allies and what they would want us to bring to the table to enhance their presence, capacity, and capability uh, in the Arctic to, to operate there. So they, that would increase uh, the exercises that we do in the maritime environment that would include uh, exercising and uh, and pressurizing a, a search and rescue regime in the high north to, to deal with what I expect is going to be at some point uh, a requirement. And then likewise, how do you deal with an industrial accident at sea right. uh, in the high north? So both of those things I just mentioned, the uh, search and rescue regime and, and the spill response, are, are two uh, agreements that have uh, come out of the Arctic Council amongst the eight nations. They do derive requirements, of, but so far they've not been mm -hmm. sufficiently or adequately addressed. Okay, so the Trump White House, the Trump administration, sits down with the seven of the eight countries that you put in the friends category. Right. They have a friend meeting. So what do we tell our friends? We tell our friends that we are woefully behind and we're trying hard to catch up because that is the absolute truth when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the Arctic. And again, uh, and we should give them a commitment that we are going to have a greater presence and influence uh, in the high north mm -hmm. ahead of both Russia and China. But right now, we're, we're far behind, and we're ill-prepared, and it's going to be a challenge to catch up and at least meet or be near pure status. And should we have that conversation with the one nation that we do not necessarily get along with, what do we say to them? Well, interestingly enough, historically, and even to this day, some would argue that uh, the Arctic is sort of a, at least in a somewhat of a commercial side, is an area where we have had better better um, 
better communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like with this with the space program with the Russians. You know, it's a it's a it's a interdependency that's lopsided uh, at this point. At this point, they do have a majority of the sea space up there. They do have the largest coastline up there. They do have a, a long history of operating up there. Um, and again, in the past, they've they've actually helped out the United States. I go back to the the, the rescue uh, in 2012 of Nome, Alaska, where they had to bring in. Renda and a number of other resources to help us out. Uh, now, I do, I, do I think that evolution would happen today in their current uh, geopolitical relationships between Russia and the United States? No. No. Uh, but it does highlight the stark need uh, that we need greater capacity and capability to operate in that area. We haven't talked uh, about environmental stewardship here in terms of polar bears and keeping a very pristine part of the world pristine if we're going to develop it. How is that managed with? With, with this you know, direction we're going into, where we're going to be exploring, we're going to be sailing through it, we're going to put a very human footprint on it. Exactly. So the first uh, kind of a benchmark uh, piece of, of a policy that's already been put in place is IMO Polar Code. So that was recently enacted, and now it's starting to be implemented mm-hmm. throughout. So it takes into account you know, uh, certain types of fuels that can be used by ships in the high north, uh, soot and black carbon re- reductions, the requirements of the crews to be operating vessel in that area again to address the unique uh, and, and specific hazards and requirements to operate uh, in that area. So that's that's first and foremost one of the one of the things that's gone through, and that drives a lot of other secondary and tertiary impacts when it comes to operating in that maritime environment. The other thing too is as far as the commercial extraction uh, and fisheries and a number of other other items, it's, it's recognized that. It, the approach that needs to be taken in the Arctic is, is far different from anywhere else. No nation wants to be the first one to have the largest industrial accident in the Arctic. Uh, so it, there has been a lot of emphasis placed on how do you safely and responsibly develop resources uh, right. in the region because um, what happens in the Arctic doesn't necessarily stay in the Arctic, and uh, it, but it, the, the impacts are significant. And again, there's... Uh, there's a great there's a great need to establish a set of uh, standards for all the domains that are that are in the Arctic. You know, from fisheries to oil and gas uh, extraction and mineral extraction to shipping, uh, to have a very specific set of standards that either need to be or exceeded when operating in the area. I'd like you to impress the audience with your intelligence by telling us what is the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. <laughs> So there is a uh, there is a seed vault in Svalbard, which is almost uh, it's an archipelago off the north coast of of, of Norway, Norway, Norwegian right. uh, territory, and it houses uh, what they claim to be the most diverse uh, seed stock in the world, and it's and it's and it's kept there so it can be preserved, and uh, meant to be a kind of a recovery mechanism for any doomsday scenario that you know the arable land uh, and developed land in. in world would have. Right. And uh, recently, because of the dynamic changes that we're seeing in, in the Arctic and the oceans at large, uh, this, this vault was flooded, and uh, w- which which caused some problems And uh, when you're talking about seeds. So now they're, you know, Norway is spending an enormous amount of resources to reconstitute the seed bank to make right. sure it is there uh, and available for, for all of humanity going forward. So again, it's just a stark reminder that uh, even with the best intentions and the best planning at the time, right. they didn't take into account the changes that ultimately impacted the seabed. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic to me because the Norwegians built this with one purpose in mind. They wanted to basically have a natural deep freeze 
to back up the world's gene banks. And I think this actually came into play in Syria recently where, because of the Civil War, certain varietals were wiped out. And the, exactly. and the Norwegians, I think, reintroduced some seeds because of that. So, um, it just it just I've really surprised me to see this was going on way up north. But the Norwegians are thinking ahead. So what else could you use the Arctic for, Deke, along those lines in terms of, you know, in terms of saving seeds? I mean, you have this this large protected area. So what else could you, what else could you be doing with that? Well, kind of on the flip side of, uh, of, of that, we see a lot of people actually building data centers up in the north. Again, data centers. To, to take advantage of the natural. I mean, this is where my cloud is? Or? Of, the, of the natural cooling, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, uh, which brings up another, which brings up another uh, initiative that needs to be pressurized going forward is, uh, is the opportunity to lay fiber uh, through the Arctic Ocean rather than through the oceans uh. as we see today. Because if you look at the way the, the fiber in infrastructure on the planet is laid out, it largely mirrors the main maritime routes right. uh, around the world. And that poses a couple of different problems. Uh, they're regularly damaged and they need to be maintained. There's no real backup for the fiber backbone that, that, uh, that, runs, that runs around the planet. Whereas if you had that same type of fiber capacity that was going through the Arctic Ocean, uh, it's less transited, it's less interacted by, by commercial activity. Uh, it's, it's not going to be as vulnerable as our existing fiber backbone is today. And if you look at the impacts uh, that, a, that a failure, either a complete or a near, near failure of any of these major um, backbones around the world, it's significant. And currently we don't have a backbone uh, or backup for that. Uh, and one obvious way to do that, to build in sufficient capacity to add to and serve as a backup would be to lay fiber through the Arctic. How would you do that mechanically in that part of the world? Because we're not talking, when you're talking about Atlantic or Pacific, it's very simple. You just drop it in the ocean. Well, it's, I wish it were that simple. Right, because you, uh, yep, you have a lot of hard stuff to cut through, right? Absolutely. Uh, but there is a way, and there are a few commercial entities that have plans on the table to mm -hmm. do just that. And again, I think from a from a national strategic point of view and from our from the point of view of our, of our friends and allies, I think it makes per perfect sense to have a backup for now what is without question uh, required for us to operate as a modern society. Okay, so if I put uh, cables up there, that means I'm not too far away from getting people Wi-Fi, which means where there is Wi-Fi, people will congregate. That's right. What is the future in that part of the world, Deke, in terms of human population? Well, uh, presently, as we kind of brought up before, the, the differences between the North American Arctic and, uh, and the European Arctic. So, for example, the area just around Murmansk uh, in Russia is home to over a million people. Right. Uh, large industrial capacity, very navigable year-round. In contrast, if you combine the entire population of the state of Alaska, about 73, you know, 723,000 people, and the entire population of, uh, of the Northern Territories and the, and the Arctic population in Canada, uh, together they don't add up to, uh, to the area just around Murmansk, and you're talking about a significant portion of, of, uh, of territory there. And it really does come down to the, just the, the various, or the variability in the, in right. the climate depending on what part of the Arctic. Right. But to build a city in the Arctic, Deke, you would need commerce. You need industry to justify people's existence, unless you put the University of the North Pole up there or something like that. You would have to have some reason why people would want to live there. So what right. sort of industry could you create that far north to actually build a city around? It already exists. Uh, and again, I think we're going to see we're going to see populators, population centers both develop and grow, mm -hmm. uh, that it's going to mirror and follow the economic development of the region. So again, if we see 
the investments uh, made in, in the extractive and the other natural resource development mm -hmm. activities, you're going to see a, a mirror of uh, population growth and in, in infrastructure to support that going forward. Right. So now this starts to get very complicated. Deke, now we're talking about if we're going to build cities, we're going to have to have roads. Are you going to build roads coming out of Alaska and Canada and other nations? What about airports and commerce and so forth? How good will the weather be year-round to put flights in and so forth? So this is require a lot of planning. Absolutely, and uh, an investment, and mm -hmm. that's that's what that's what's driving that. And how would the U.S. actually plan this, Deke? Who would drive this? Would you lead this to just private industries to do this, or the government have to oversee this to do it sensibly? Or? There's going to be some regulatory requirements, obviously, to mm -hmm. do it responsibly right. uh, going forward. But as we've seen in the past, and I'll specifically speak to the United States, you know, the industry has driven uh, the, the economic development and investments in, in these areas. And, uh, and that's what we've seen in, in Europe as well. The economic development of, of the resources drives uh, everything else around it. It drives infrastructure requirements. It drives a uh, both a cultural and hard security requirement to, to protect those those lines of communication and economic development zones. Mm -hmm. And we see the same thing. Uh, and again, I know that the, our good friends in Alaska think about this quite a bit. Right. Uh, they like to say, you know, we are, the United States is an Arctic uh, nation by nature, their, their state. And you're absolutely right. The, the, develop, the economic development is going to pull and pressurize the requirement for the infrastructure to support it going forward. Okay, final question for you. You've been at this for six years now with the with the Hoover Initiative. Give us some benchmarks, Deke, to look for in the next six years in terms of Arctic strategy and Arctic development. So again, I think we've seen since we started our, our initiative, we, we've seen one significant change, and that is a rising Russia in the in the region and a more aggressive Russia uh, in the region, and that's something that had, that we've seen evolve since we started the initiative. Close behind that, we've seen China really making investments uh, in the Arctic and uh, in the nations in the Arctic. In fact, we just we just came out with a study recently that detailed all the foreign direct investment that China has made in the Arctic, and they are leading the way by and far uh, going forward. And again, because they want to secure those resources uh, going forward. But first and foremost, you know, we do need to look at our own backyard. We need to look at what we're doing. We need to make those investments to make sure that we have a secure and prosperous Arctic, not only in our own backyard, but that of our friends and allies uh -huh. uh, in Europe. Uh, and if we don't do it, someone else is. Okay, so let's rec let's recap those priorities. Those priorities are developing a presence in Alaska, a naval presence in Alaska, the base. On, on both onshore and offshore. Onshore and on onshore and offshore. Okay. Secondly, icebreakers. Absolutely. Thirdly, oil exploration. Oil, gas, and minerals. Oil, gas, and minerals. So okay. those are the uh, those are the economic drivers in, in the high north, and they'll continue to be in, going forward. Uh, fisheries, obviously, it's a part of that. What right. what is in the ocean? Um, so those are the commercial activities that are that, that underpin and support the region. And then, in terms of approaching Russia, is it carrot or stick? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. How to approach China? China, likewise, uh, is going to be interesting to watch going forward. Again, as their their self-proclaimed near Arctic state status. Uh, but but again, you have to follow the money. You look at where they're making their investments, and I think it's instructive. Uh, and it leads it leads us to uh, indicators on where they see their priorities in the region. Okay, listeners who want to find out more about the Arctic, what you're doing, just the topic in general, where would you where'd you drive them on the internet? Uh, right to our website uh, at hoover.org. Hoover and where, where do they the look Arctic, for your work? For the Arctic Security Initiative. So again, if you just drive into Google, 
uh, Hoover Arctic Security Initiative. It's going to bring you right to our, our page. You'll see a history of our our work and what we've published and ideas and what we're going to be doing going forward. Outstanding. You told me you have some uh, art friends coming to uh, the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto not too, not too long from now. That's right. Uh, we'll be convening a, a series of, of, uh, of meetings around the topics that we've discussed today. Mm -hmm. And as we conclude those meetings, we'll be posting our findings and our recommendations on the website. Really good. Deke Slayton, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th in the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Commander David Slayton and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at herinst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Commander David Deke Slayton also is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at David M. Slayton. Slayton spelled S-L-A-Y-T-O-N, at David M. Slayton. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.